You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today's guest is a man whose career has encompassed almost every facet of technology creation. From an early career engineering for NASA, to seven years launching new products for Apple, and more recently supporting startups at both a venture capital firm and incubator programs. At almost every stage of his career, Omar Khalifa has reinvented himself to chase new challenges, and it's fair to say he was well ahead of his time at building what is now known as a portfolio career. Now based in the Illawarra, south of Sydney, Omar is bringing his wide-ranging experience to bear as the CEO of iAccelerate, an incubator program helping young founders find their feet in entrepreneurship and innovation. Omar Khalifa, welcome to LabNotes. Yes, well, thank you very much for inviting me. So I think it's fair to say you've had a very diverse career, by my count, living in eight countries and working for 17 companies on everything from the space shuttle to e-commerce. I wanted to start off with a simple question, but one that might have a complex answer. Did you intend for your career to be this varied portfolio-style career? Look, I mean, part of it was perhaps caused by things that were outside of my control. I had a lot of colleagues who you know, came out of university who basically wanted to settle into a job for life. Not that long ago, it was still possible for people to think about themselves getting their gold watch and their exit from a, uh, from a company and going to retirement with a retirement plan and everything in place to support them. But I was probably a bit on the forefront uh, without really realizing it of that shift in how businesses work and the fluidity that was about to set itself as being the norm now for all businesses. So my first job was at the Kennedy Space Center. It was a great job and it sort of fulfilled my own aspirations. You know, I grew up watching, you know, rockets being launched and thought one day it would be great, like a lot of other young kids about somehow being involved in it. And it just happened that I was able to land a job that got me right there inside the vehicle assembly building. But that role at, at a company was a contractor to NASA, you know, um, vaporized after a couple of years. And it became clear that the hire and fire uh, nature of aerospace at the time was that no one could be secure in any one job because companies would constantly be rebidding for the business. Um, so I left that job before things got really bad and went on to work in aerospace at another company, Martin Marietta. And I wasn't there two years before they lost the contract that I, of, on the project I was working on. And once again, it looked like it was going to be out the door. Luckily, I was playing soccer with some guy who was uh, in another business, electronics business, working on uh, facsimile machines, which are, you know, seems like ancient history now. But uh, back then, we're still a bit leading edge. And after about three years, the owner of that business basically decided they were going to close down that division and move things elsewhere. So my first... You know, first three jobs, it looked like everything was just sort of being decided for me. I didn't have a choice about staying on and working in any one company. And so I made my mind up that it was time for me just to look after a career path that made sense to me and allowed me to do things that were interesting. It allowed me a lot of flexibility as to where I where I worked. And so it allowed me to travel a bit more, look at different parts of the, you know, the U.S. that I was, was working on originally. And then also, of course, I had international experience under my belt in university, and I just continued that path as well. Yeah, well, I mean, we should talk about travel, because you've certainly done a lot of that too. You were you were actually born in, in Egypt, I understand, in the 1950s, you know, quite a tumultuous period there, just after the revolution and in the midst of the Suez crisis. 
What do you remember about those early years and your family's decision to relocate to America? Yeah, well, that's that is going back a bit. Um, so we moved when I was six years old. So I, I, I went to um, you know kindergarten and uh, first grade of school in um, in Cairo, and I was work, I was going to a French school, and which were the private schools there and the dominant private schools. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I do have some very vivid memories, even at that age, of you know certain things in, in my life, and even during some of the bombings, I was I was there for that. And I think it was sort of an introduction into a world that was going to be uh, tumultuous and and ended up being quite flexible as a result. My mother was American, my father was Egyptian, and so when things were breaking out there and the revolution was happening, the government of the time decided that. You know, anybody who was working in a successful capacity was a threat to the survival of the government. So a lot of my father's friends were being thrown in jail, all the academics, journalists and uh, people owning companies. And he owned a company. He was only 26 years old and became managing director of, of uh, one of Egypt's largest companies. And so he was on the firing line as well. And so we, we basically had to had to leave without much in our bags. We basically went on vacation and never went home was how it ended up happening. So yes, I mean, I, life was was different for me. I, I, I landed in America without being able to work, uh, speak a word of English. I spoke French and Arabic and had to go to a French school to begin to learn uh, to speak English. So basically understanding how to be flexible in your life was a pretty early lesson for me. And um, seeing my dad have to basically start over from being like, you know, the top dog in the company and uh, having to start all over again. And so that lesson I think was uh, stay with the whole family and all of my brothers, I think, learned how to build our own careers and, and survive no matter what the circumstances. So after this life-changing move to the USA, Omar continued his education, ultimately gaining a Bachelor's of Engineering from Duke University in North Carolina. During this degree, Omar supplemented his formal study with summer internships in Mexico and Europe, working to create and test fiber optic cables that became the backbone for telecommunications across the Atlantic. After his graduation, Omar's combination of solid grades, work experience, and a worldly outlook clearly impressed recruiters, and he secured a coveted graduate job, working for NASA as part of the Space Shuttle program. I asked him about this role and fulfilling a childhood dream of becoming part of the space race. Yeah, like I said, you know, ever since I was a kid, I was fascinated by the whole concept of, you know, man going to the moon and all of that and would stay up nights to watch all of the landings, you know, running home from school. If I could catch one of the rockets going off, rode off to my congressman to get all the information I could from NASA. So sometimes I think you have these internal fascinations that can live with you for a long time. And my first office, I mean, it was pretty amazing. I mean, I was, work, I was working within the building that you see on television with a big flag on the side of it, what they call the Vehicle Assembly Building, where they literally put the Saturn rocket and then later the space shuttle physically together. And we had some windowless offices inside that building, like a big hangar. The, the company I was working for was responsible for all of the launch pad facilities for the space shuttle. So that included the fueling system, the hold down posts that actually kept the thing sitting on the pad as well as the access arm to get the astronauts into the space shuttle. So I had various projects on several of those, but one of them was to actually figure out how to put a you know nitrogen purge box mounting for the camera, the television camera that would actually be the last thing that you know the astronauts would, would see as they got into the space shuttle and the last we would see of them when they waved to the camera. 
So that was my, the most famous thing I've probably ever done was uh, to have that camera that everybody watched uh, when these launches went on. Yeah, it was it was a fascinating introduction to, to my career and, and one I still remember back uh, on fondly. So as promised, I'll skip over a few jobs now, but I wanted to touch on one position that you held for longer than any other, which was a seven-year stint with Apple in California starting in 1986. It's perhaps worth noting that this corresponds to the period when Steve Jobs was not working at the company. Uh, what are your memories of the culture of Apple at that time? I think everybody has a moment in their career where things you know, have a, take a fundamental shift. It's almost like that release, you say, yeah, you know what, that's what it's all about. Um, the job before Apple was with Hewlett Packard, where it was inkjet printers, and that was pretty interesting as well. I was then transitioning to be more of a product-focused manager rather than a pure engineer, and so that began to that transition. And at Apple, the transition was completed. It's a whole, it was a whole new area, frankly. It's and Australia is only beginning to get there because we're not into making a lot of new products, so we tend to either decide if we want to sell things that are made elsewhere or we're going to do the very early stage of development and research. So this, the role I was in at Apple was really the one that's transitionary. So understanding, getting to understand your market and then beginning to understand the technology and then matching up how the technology was going to make a difference and be appealing to the market. And that's, of course, where Apple was well ahead of everybody else because they really had a focus on developing things that would really make people impressed. I mean, put a smile on people's faces. I mean, that was really the ultimate goal for you know any Apple product was to make something so simple and almost lovely to use. So that was really meaningful uh, for me in understanding how it is that one positions uh, products and even technology in a way that makes people feel that it's accessible and it's easy to use. And in fact, you, you want to use it because it, it, it responds so well to your own needs and curiosities. Um, and at the end, I really got interested in, in the whole aspect of life cycle. I think I met some of my other interests in life uh, about the environment and understanding and appreciating it and where products need to be developed, recognizing those uh, those aspects. So whether it was um, the recycling or making out of materials that would be more eco-friendly, if you will, from the beginning, you know, it was really something that um, you know started there. And I actually created a group there that would look after the whole life cycle of products, you know, we're looking at how we would reduce the impact, whether it was in the energy consumption or in the actual materials, and also figure out how to make sure that those products were in fact recycled. So that opened up yet another door, right? So in my career and thinking about that, that was really something important that I could also pursue. So following your time at Apple, your wanderlust seems to return. You spent time working in Switzerland with BCSD, followed by the World Bank in Washington, D.C., and finally, in 1996, you came to Australia for a job with the Sustainable Energy Development Authority. Did you know then that Australia was to become your home for 15 years, or was this another short stint to see a new country? No, I'm actually, you know, um, I mentioned I was in Australia and I was here for about eight months. Um, that was 1988, 89. And towards the end of that, I mean, I just loved Australia. I just I just loved it. I loved the way people were so pragmatic. And I also felt the sense of community was a lot stronger. Um, so a lot of things just felt really great here. And I met my future wife at the end of that stint and uh, we um, reconnected later on and then she came and moved to the US where we got married. And we, we had always said that, you know, one day we would head back to Australia, but we knew that if we headed back, it would sort of be the one way ticket. Um, so we didn't rush to that. We said, let's go and have all these other experiences. So we went on and I had that 
opportunity and the role in the, in Geneva, which was amazing. And, and then uh, a, sh a short stint uh, with the World Bank uh, as a consultant there. Uh, where, and this is where my family was. And so I had some time with them before we moved to um, Australia. And so it's sort of linked up as a sense of, yeah, let's let's do this thing while we can and uh, let's go and, and maximize those experiences. But Australia was the destination. It was always meant to be. So that's where we have ended up and stayed here now over 20, almost 24 years. Now, much like your early career, you've held quite a few titles in Australia, but one I wanted to touch on was when you became general manager for an internet startup, Unwired Australia, which was your first real startup experience from what I can tell. What did you learn from this foray into the world of startups? Yeah, so this is really, this is sort of interesting because a lot of people talk to me about, you know, startups and, and gee, aren't they so different than being in a corporate? And I have to remind people, you know, many times in a corporate, um, especially in the areas like I was, which was usually on the innovation side, so the new product areas, even though I was at Telstra and with the big pond, uh, you're creating with sometimes a startup within a big company. And, and that's not necessarily a lot easier than doing it, you know, uh, outside of a big company. And what, what is easier is that you, more, that you get a paycheck more consistently and there's no doubt about that and you have some resources, but you're also competing with resources often within a company and you have political infighting like you never experienced in a startup. And so you have a lot of other things that happen. So you begin to realize that you, you have to battle it out against existing products. You know? So in some ways, you're unseating incumbents just as you would be as a startup. So in many ways, I think being within a, a, a large company can give you some of that basic experience that you need and actually can be very valuable. So when you come into a startup environment, you actually understand what it is you're up against. And also those the, the people you're up against and how they would work or function or even think. So yes, Unwired became uh, a, you know my first actual small startup uh, that uh, you know, and they hired me. And because of my experience when I was had been at Telstra and they they'd known me there, uh, people who, who hired me and um, I guess they respected what I'd done there. And so I helped them get uh, themselves a product line and uh, get them to be listed and to and to go their first IPO. Um, yeah, anyway, and it was it was a quite an interesting sort of experience where you know you basically got to become a jack of all trades, um, and I've worked in across um, all areas, forecasting, pricing, um, even supported the, uh, the I actually managed the customer support and the, um, people as well, so people are on the phone lines. Um, so it was really varied, and I guess it was interesting in the fact that you never knew any day to day what might might come next, and that's pretty much the experience I think for a lot of uh, startups. And a lot of founders who you know have to be multi-skilled or certainly understand how to um, you know keep a lot of balls in the air at the same time as um, as, as they uh, pursue you know what they're trying to do and also be ready to to pivot when things don't work out quite the thought the way they thought uh, or or new opportunities start so yeah it was it was it was interesting in some ways it sort of pulled some things together for me that, that has helped me uh, since then. So after Unwide, you became an investment director with Uniseed, which is essentially a VC firm focused on commercializing university IP. And that's a real focus for this podcast. I wonder if you could tell us about this role and your experiences in trying to bridge that gap between research and industry. Yeah, so Uniseed was basically a, um, was created by three universities who decided that the best way for them to support innovation within the coming out of the university uh, would be to 
set up a semi-autonomous arm that basically invested back into the company. So they would put money into Uniseed and then Uniseed would, would come back and in and look at what was investable. So it actually was a pretty intelligent way of thinking about it, thinking that you know, well, the universities probably wouldn't be very good at assessing themselves. So the idea was to strip all that away and look more pragmatically and objectively at what was in fact investable. So I I was hired in to become one of the people who, who basically uh, did that. And I was at UNSW and working with their commercialization group to see what was uh, addressable or what was investable by Uniseed. Uh, and very interesting because we had a, such a wide array of you know of technologies and some of them were pretty uh, advanced and some of them were quite early stage and trying to figure out what was in fact the right ones to put the money in was uh, was interesting it was interesting you know fascinating it had some insights from you know an investor point of view for the first time well that experience in appraising startups has definitely come back around after a brief period advocating and lobbying for cycling in Australia you landed your current role as CEO of iAccelerate in 2016. Can you tell us a little bit about that new role and you becoming a mentor and a facilitator for other entrepreneurs? Yeah, so I guess if one were to look at it from 40,000 feet, you'd say, well, this was almost like the job that put it all together because I'd been on all the different uh, sides of innovation and you know, on the investment side, on the investable side and everything else and as well as being in on some of the technology developments of the day and that were you know happening and so it wasn't much that would surprise me or I hadn't like seen something similar before and so when this job came up it was just like yeah I mean that's just perfect for me and I really began to believe that I could probably do more by helping others at this stage in my career in my life this felt really like the right thing to do and I was hoping I could sort of depend on some of what I've learned to help others, um, you know, avoid some of the pitfalls, but also give them a better opportunity. I think it's uh, it's very can be very rewarding to see others succeed, and if you've helped them along, um, it's it's uh, really can be something you know something special. Uh, I think it's like a teacher, you know, seeing a student you know come out of their shell and do something great. I think seeing a business um, pull themselves together and really be able to make have an impact. And sometimes it's not the business, sometimes even the founders uh, or the individuals working in a company, you see them evolve and realize some ambition of theirs or capability they didn't know they had. Uh, these are all really rewarding for me. And this this role has it all. I mean, we know we work with people who are investing, we work with mentors and trying to identify the right mentors and trying to also provide the right kind of um, education support that we can for startups who have you know a hugely varied portfolio, you know, some of them in health and education, some of them are working on drones, some working on 3D printing, some of people are you now working in, um, you know, solar energy. So we have such an array within our uh, hub. Uh, it's a magical place. I mean, uh, everybody is energized to think about something and how to develop an idea potentially into something that could actually, either, you know, change their lives or change the world. And that's an environment that I find very stimulating and, and, and very rewarding. Yeah, and look, there's been a really interesting debate about entrepreneurial education, which basically centers around the thought that every new business and every new venture is so unique that it's not necessarily easy to teach entrepreneurship. Um, how challenging has it been to create a program and course content that's transferable between different founders and startups? Yeah, that's 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 a great one because I mean there are so many programs, and is there a perfect program? No, there's not. There's 
all, all you can do, I think, is provide enough of the skill set that someone can then pull the pieces together when they need it to actually do what they need to do. So whether we're talking about intellectual property or we're talking about accounting or how to think about your products or your service, you know, how do you make that something that others, not just yourself, would see some value in? Most entrepreneurial programs that are worth their salt are the ones that make you think and to give yourself a chance to look at something perhaps differently and being enlightened by others who are around you. And it might be another startup, it might be a mentor, it could be somebody on my staff, but that there are ways for you to uh, access some unique um, insight that you may have not otherwise been able to access. So for us, it's putting a rounded program that allows us to offer up a lot of things, but ultimately, you know, it's up to the, the founders and the startup to decide that they're willing to do the work. So this is like going to the gym, you know, like, the gym can provide you all the most wonderful, you know, weight machines and uh, uh, cycling machines or whatever it is, but you've got to do the work. And so you've got to climb on, you've got to do it. You know, people can coach you, help you do everything else, but ultimately it's going to be up to you to develop um, that capability yourself and it'll reflect on the kind of work and uh, uh, commitment and dedication. And ultimately, you, some people just can't do things, right? I mean, just like a weightlifter, you know, there is potentially a, just a limit. You know, you just can't get beyond, and 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 that's okay. And I think that's uh, a um, insight as well. It's just saying, well, I'm this is not this is not my thing. So, for a founder, maybe that they have to surround themselves with people who who can assist them in those areas, or maybe even get an investor who can help that. And it's part of the learning process is to understand your own limitations as well as where you have some you know, particular insights that others don't have. So we're trying to create an environment where these things can happen. It's a pretty special place, and it was the right thing for me at the right time. Um, I wanted to ask about something that I, I know to be a cornerstone of your program, which is around the lean startup methodology and something called the business model canvas. Can you explain to the audience what that framework is and why you feel it's important for founders? Sure. Um, Look, I think we all know about business plans. You know, the business plan is almost like the term paper, right? It's the thing that freezes your in your head. You're like, oh my God, what am I, how am I going to do this? And the business plan previously was the thing that everybody looked on to say, does this person have an idea that's worthwhile? The problem with business plans is not only are they stayed in their format, they tended to also provide the sense of things being quite static. And also they didn't tend to push the buttons of, what you really needed to do to make this a convincing uh, proposal for an investor. At least that's the way I saw it. They're quite staid, you did it, maybe a few people read it, got put on a shelf, and then you sort of went on and did, did what you needed to do. The canvas is really a much more um, deliberate way of saying, these are the, this is how you map out what a business looks like. And this is how you can layer looking at it in different ways. And you may have you know different customer sets and what does it mean to each of them? It's, it's sort of, make sure that you that you cover all those different areas that a business plan may just not be able to cover in a static way so it is in some ways a visual mapping um, certainly the visual aspect of it provides the framework and that's why it's called a canvas because it, it is laid out typically in a, in a in a grid format or we've just redesigned um, the actual canvas so that it's actually in a completely different format than before because we think we've learned a few things along the way but it is about the sense of how you get from um, your initial idea out to a fully investable or a market-ready product. So it has to cover all the steps, but it also accommodates the fact that things will change. And it almost predicts that you'll change as you go through each step. 
and you evolved your idea and you evolved your understanding of how to get to the marketplace with it. So it is uh, it is something we were really keen on because of that um, sense of um, the visual sense of it, also the flexibility of it and the fact that it shouldn't be static. Uh, it shouldn't just sit on a shelf. Uh, we'd love to have people have those canvases up on the wall and, and you know and use you know whiteboard markers to to update them frequently because that's really where the power of it is is to ensure that you're not skipping steps and that you are in fact covering off all the areas that would be required by just about anyone who wants who would be interested in investing or in fact even maybe your customers who would expect you to have gone through some of the thinking process behind it. I know you've, you would have seen a lot of bright-eyed entrepreneurs pass through the doors over the last four or five years, and the unfortunate reality is that most of their ventures won't make it or, or will require a pretty major rethink. How do you and I accelerate approach the challenge of managing the high failure rate of companies and founders? Yeah, I think we may have a, a slightly lower failure rate, but it's, it's look, it is a, a funneling process, right? So we a lot of people, I mean, we've had people literally walk to our door and say, look, I've got this really broad idea. Um, who do I hand it off to? You know, <laughs> and here's my address if you want to send me the check when you make a lot of money off of it. And it's like, uh, no, it doesn't work that way. Our job is to enable your ideas and your um, energy to make this work. So there are people who just don't get it. Look, and not every idea is right for the market and not every idea is right for the market at that time as being, you know, someone's thinking of it. But it might be a few years down the track. And I've seen more than a few ideas who, gee, they just missed by, you know, maybe a year or two or three years of the market interest in, in that particular area. So it can be a lot of different factors that go into it. But there's two things that we, I mean, we do. First of all, is we create a, help create a skill set amongst you know, the founders who come in. So that skill set can be applied over and over again, it's like learning to fish or anything else. You, you begin to learn some principles that work no matter what you're doing or where you are. That is a lifelong skill set that any idea at any time could be, and you could apply it to and and uh, realize something maybe at a different time in your journey. Um, so the skill set aspect of it, and then there's the aspect of the actual idea you have right now and to test that one out and to see where that takes you. And I would say that you know the majority of the businesses who come in thinking that they got the idea and they know how they're going to get it to market will have changed that significantly before they um, they get through the first or second or even third year of their business and they may have changed it more than once but it's certainly going to change it at least once partly it's a refinement but oftentimes we'll find people pivot pretty strongly into a different aspect of where they started and we encourage that and we that's why we like companies who come in there sort of with an open mind and we really don't like people who come in there saying look i got it you know just just give me a desk you know i'm you know, I'm, I'm good those people are really hard to work with because they're not going to be open-minded and thinking about the flexibility they will need to have to ensure that they can refine the product very few people get it right the first time facebook and google these people did not get it right the first time when they first got their idea they had to refine the heck out of the model before that they could work. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking for people who have that flexibility and the energy to put behind it. So we filter some people out at the first gate, which is you know when you apply to come into iAccelerate. Um, we just don't invite anyone in. We ask you to, to think through what your process is. And now we have an actual session we, ca we call Test Your Business Idea. We run that for a few hours and anyone can come and attend that for free. And you basically get your sense of where that, where your business idea might, how it might stack up, or at least how you might begin to think about it 
and then you can get into the program where we can actually then work with you to fully develop and test your idea and give you that first sense of what it might actually end up being um, that goes to market. So our understanding is is to is to help people figure out you know how to get into the process and those who may not be ready then they should maybe take some time out and get themselves ready to do that so we're not trying to get everybody through through the door in fact we're trying to get people to assess uh, where they are and some will leave after that in the first education program that we now call activate which lasts about six weeks and then they might sense that gee you know what that idea i had it wasn't as good an idea as i thought and let me go back and rethink that and I'll come back. And we encourage people to, to you know, take a time out and maybe come back with a different idea. And we know, some, as I said, some of these might be skills that they've now gained that might surface at any time. And by the way, just so we, we also are understanding that people coming in the door are not you know, necessarily the under 30 tech guy who just has this brilliant idea. We have people coming from you know, who have been nurses and people who are, who've been basically, you know, at the end retired or, you know, have had their last job um, saying, you know what, I've got this thing I've been thinking about for the last 10 years and now I want to do it. And it's nothing to do with their, where they've been in their career. So we understand that for some people, this is a, this can be a, a either a continuation where they're doing or something completely different from where they've been. And that's what ma makes it such an interesting place to be in because people are all kinds of journeys. It's like being at, a, at an airport and not knowing who's walking to what plane, going where. Um, but it's all pretty exciting, and it's got a it's got a buzz of its own. So, 20 years ago, there was almost nothing like iAccelerate in Australia. But over the last decade, there's been a really significant proliferation of incubators and shared workspaces, both here and abroad. Do you have any sense that we're approaching a saturation point, or are there still many entrepreneurs in search of a home and in search of support? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, look, I think Australia is, is playing catch up in this area. So I think there's a lot of skill building still to be done um, to give people the confidence as well as the opportunity to take an idea to market. And I, I don't think there's anyone who would dispute the fact that you know the, the world ahead of us is gonna be a lot different than the world that's, uh, that's either here now or was behind us. And idea flows have to go faster and be developed better and further if Australia is going to maintain a sort of a standard of living that we're all hoping for. The mining and everything else that's kind of gotten us here is now not going to get us to the next stage. And I think that's pretty clear. So that means we have to change everything in us, including the education system, but also thinking about how we build the kinds of self-confidence and um, the skill sets amongst people, even starting from you know school age. Um, so we've been approached by you know, high schools to say, look, we need an entrepreneurial program now. I mean, give some kids a chance to think about the world a bit differently because some of them are ready for it earlier. And it actually, again, like we said before, skill sets are, once you've established them, you can dip into them at any time. And even if you're not gonna be the founder, you know, it's a really important skill to understand how to work with a startup. So even if you're gonna be an employee of a startup, it's great to know exactly what that means and how you can help a business get started. But we need to do some work to get enough people into that innovation space that where these things can then begin to happen. So starting in high school and maybe even before, and then a handoff into university for those who want to go that way, or otherwise maybe a step up directly into an accelerator if the ideas really are ready to go um, more quickly. But we need to have these pathways ready and not so difficult as they might be today. And so 
I'm not too worried about having too many accelerators and incubators. I just think we need to have the kind of ones that are effective and highly networked so people can actually uh, translate their interests and knowledge no matter where they are and also to be able to bridge across. So we spent a lot of time creating a, a regional network, a national network, and over the last 12 months been creating an international network. The other part of it is getting the researchers um, who are ready to build a business to ha give them that confidence about how to do that because we we found researchers who are very keen, uh, have great ideas. Sometimes they don't know exactly how to translate that to have the impact that, it, that an idea could have. So we're really also keen on ensuring those um, people who are thinking about having greater impact from their uh, research or their ideas, um, that they also get a chance to fulfill that. And so it's varied and I think accelerators and incubators can play a great role. And perhaps they are in fact, you know, the libraries of the future in a way that this is where people will cross paths. And this is where people also will think about ideas, you know, like um, like the Romans had the plazas where the orators and everybody else came together and in that marketplace of ideas and of goods, you actually created something really unique and um, and um, could that something that could in fact change the world. So I think this is where where we're headed. Um, I'm just hoping government stick with the model and don't let this become just like a, a fad in their minds that they just did that once and they yeah, now we're moving on. Uh, especially with in the days of COVID like we have now, there are people who are thinking, you know what, this is time to kind of recalibrate uh, my career or my opportunity. So. We think government should really be behind this and figuring out ways to help activate and ensure that these these pathways are, are open, if not encouraged, because our future, in fact, will rely on it. Well, I think that's a great spot to wrap up the discussion, Omar. One final question that we'd like to end on is simply, do you have any reading recommendations for the audience? Oh, I've been sort of bouncing between books and haven't finished all the ones I'm starting, but I'm certainly been looking at the life of Leonardo da Vinci and how he came to be. And I think the insights there of, of someone who came from very small little means and somehow became, you know, someone that we can remember even um, now um, for all the things that he was able to do. I think, um, yeah, he, he's, he's an interesting one, but I'm also more interested these days in thinking about some of the indigenous pathways that are around us and thinking about statement from the heart and also um, dark emu and understanding better about, you know, the indigenous backdrop to, uh, to us here in Australia and the fact that we need to recognize and build off some of the strengths and understandings there. And in fact, that's a help to embolden us into creating an acceleration program for indigenous people in particular. Understanding more about the cultures around us and understanding also pathways to me has always been fascinating. And um, certainly some of the books I'm, I'm reading and delving into now have um, reflect that, I think. Well, Omar Khalifa, thanks so much for your time today and allowing us to explore your life and some insights into the world of business incubation. Oh, thanks, Leo. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guest's biography and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.